and welcome to Turn On The Lights. I'm Jade Armate. And I'm Don Berwick. With Turn On The Lights, we put a spotlight on ways to improve the healthcare system in the U.S. Thanks for listening. Listeners, as you know, in our podcast, Turn on the Lights, we're trying to focus attention on populations in the United States that are marginalized to the compromise of their health, health status, and access uh, to health care. In a recent survey, nearly one in every two transgender individuals, including 68% of transgender people of color, reported experiencing mistreatment at the hands of a healthcare provider in the year prior including care refusal or verbal or physical abuse. This is only one statistic that illustrates why transgender care is an area full of opportunities for improvement. Our guest today to talk about inclusive and equitable healthcare for LGBTQ plus patients is Dr. Kyle Christensen. Dr. Christensen is a medical director and a family physician at the Unity Point Health in Cedar Falls, Iowa. He started some years ago an LGBTQ clinic and became an advocate after his son came out as transgender 10 years ago. Kyle Christensen, welcome to Turn On The Lights. I'd love to dive in a little bit into how you came into the work that you're doing right now. If you could take us into how you began in this journey around LGBTQ health. Absolutely, KR. It's really a great joy and honor to be with you all. And thanks for convening this space. I'm really grateful for the platform that you are creating here and the stories that you all are sharing. And we're proud to share ours. With our work in the LGBTQ community and the clinic that we started now five and a half years ago, the original spark actually came about 10 years ago when our oldest son came out identifying as transgender. So at that time, our child was about 14, 15. And our experience, my experience in medical school was one that I had painfully little education about transgender health. And so I was a little concerned about how do I help support my child both medically as well as a parent. And I talked to my colleagues and they had the same lack of education as I. So I went to my insurance company and I said, I think I need some help. And really, your first you know, port of call was your insurance company. This is first, interesting. Well, the third strike at it. And I was immediately reminded, oh yeah, please stay in network. Uh, right. So okay. that was good help. Yes. So then they actually sent us to a, a sex therapist who was an hour and a half away. Huh. And although they had never had a transgender client, they were absolutely fascinated by Ben and wanted to keep talking, but it wasn't really what we needed. So through lots of diligence and support from people in our life. We found our way up to University of Minnesota, which is about three and a half hours away. So Kyle, one second, our listeners don't know where you are. So maybe to tell them where you are a little bit about the background of your community and a little bit about where this story takes place. Put us in the picture of it. That does help. We are right in the center of the country. So we're in Northeast Iowa. And so I worked in a community that's about 120,000 people. And for Iowa, that's, that's relatively urban. And even in that kind of a community, we didn't have the resources for this type of care. So we had to find our way to the nearest real urban center, which was the Twin Cities, Minneapolis-St. Paul. So three and a half hours away. And there we heard things that really helped us. You know, we heard things from a real center of excellence about, gosh, everything that your child is experiencing, we see all the time. That's very common. The questions we were having as parents, we heard very reassuringly. All our parents say that type of thing. That's very common to hear. 
And just those few statements really gave us a lot of security and support. What were some of the things they were saying were common that you were also experiencing? You know, at that time, we were trying to understand what does this mean? And asking all the questions that now parents that I see every single day in clinic ask, is this a phase? How does this happen? What does this mean? Is this the same thing as sexual orientation? If not, how is it different? So lots of things I think are, as a parent, I look back and I think probably rooted in fear, you know, maybe cloaked a little bit and trying to make sure I'm, I'm caring for my child. But I think a lot of fear as I look back. And part of that, again, was just just not understanding how I can best support my child, again, as a parent as well as medically. The moment your son tells you about this as a parent, I imagine I've got young kids actually not far off from when Ben first told you about being trans, about his experience. How did you register that? How did you and your family kind of process this information? What was your initial sort of reaction to it? And then how did that story maybe evolve over the course of time? To be honest, initially, again, we kind of wanted to make sure that we understood this, make sure that we understood exactly what this meant for our own child discovering themselves. How can we support them? But again, even looking back, we had a lot of fear. And and I think this is something we hear a lot from families that we love to share in the parents group that we actually lead that parents often have this fear of losing something, this fear of, of losing, I think, you know, a child's name, or even, you know, I think it's these stories that we tell ourselves as we become young parents and think about their future. And so on some level, I think it's just kind of this loss of that narrative that we told ourselves. Silly little things like as a father walking my daughter down the aisle, right? That kind of a thing. So that's how it kind of felt on a lot of levels, trying to understand this. But as we continue to evolve and really understand our child being their most authentic self, it wasn't losing anything. In fact, our child was actually being born. You know, our child was becoming alive, was becoming their most authentic self for the first time. And so this sense of loss, I can only see that as I look back because I sure don't feel that way 10 years later. I, it's been the greatest gift to me as a parent and the greatest gift to me as a professional. Can you talk a bit about the community context there, Kyle? You're in a part of the country one tends to think of as rather conservative. Was there a community reaction and what was it like and did it help? That's a great question, Don, and it's one that's evolving rapidly. So we moved back to Iowa on purpose 24 years ago when I was done with my medical training. And it was because Iowa has great education. Of course, I have family here and it was a purple state for many years. However, that really has changed. And so the, the political environment has actually become really difficult for us. In fact, medical access to gender-affirming care for minors has recently been stripped away in Iowa. That's over one of the many states that, that had that enacted this last session. When we first did this journey, we first started talking about this. We didn't experience that. We didn't have any pushback, really. In fact, it was almost one of those, if you built it, they will come kind of thing, another Iowa reference. So the, the idea that if we create this space, people recognize that this is something that's necessary. And that went back to our journey. When we looked back and said, gosh, we had to drive three hours. It's just to get basic, culturally humble care and some level of kindness in the medical arena. That doesn't need to happen. Why do we need to wait for academic medical centers to be the only ones that solve this? This is something that is really not that highly specialized in terms of the medical part of it, we recognize that the real goal is just creating a very safe and more welcoming space. So Kyle, what did you do? So you had this experience with your own son and you had this 
experience of needing to get care somewhere else far, reasonably far away in Minnesota. And you decided to do something about this in your local community. So tell us that part of the story. What did you decide to do and how's it going? That's really our favorite part of this. We, when we decided that something had to be done, it was really just recognizing that need to begin. And that's one of the major principles that we started with and continue as we redesign healthcare. Our space is the art of noticing, right? Just notice. Notice that there are absurd disparities, that it's absurd that I have to drive four hours to get care, that it's absurd that a certain population has outcomes that are different when we in medicine say, quote, we treat everybody the same way, end quote. That absurdity is something we just need to start just noticing. Just observe that that is happening. And if we continue to do the same thing the same way, why do we expect different outcomes? So just noticing that was the very first step. Once we noticed that... Kyle, before you move too much further on, you said something there that I want to just pick up on. What are the differences in the outcomes that people are experiencing? I mean, obviously there's a time you were having to go to travel to get care, but what other kind of outcome differences or experience differences were your patients experiencing? Part of our discovery process was really convening lots of listening sessions. We did that, this is all pre-COVID, so we did it in person and we convened open forum and just wanted to hear, just listen. We did it asynchronously through some list serves. We wanted to hear what medical experiences have you had? What is that legacy experience in healthcare? And what we heard, again, rather absurd and consistent with what the data tell us. So when we look at what research talks about, it's important to be positive and there's no such thing as an LGBTQ person. That's a mishmash that, that gets all pushed together. But there may be a common experience and one that is rooted in maybe discrimination. And that looks like a population that's maybe discriminated, rejected against by family or friends, by employers, that even employment can be at risk. Certainly housing can be at risk. Our kids don't feel safe. And so they miss school. And for transgender folks, again, physical violence is a much higher risk. Unfortunately, that type of discrimination extends into healthcare. And so we heard stories and what studies tell us, things like, you blame me for my health status. You used harsh or even abusive language that one out of five folks said, I was just simply refused access to care because I was transgender. When all of that happens and that's that legacy experience and people are not honored for who they truly are in that medical environment, guess what happens? They don't come see us in healthcare when they need to. They don't seek preventive services, perhaps. They're more likely to have substance use. They're more likely to have mental health concerns. Suicide risk is three plus times increased risk for LGBTQ folks more than three times risk compared to their peers. So that's kind of the legacy. That's where we start. So go ahead then with your story. What did you decide to do and how did you carry it out? Understanding that disparity and, and recognizing this is absurd, we decided, well, let's try to do something about it or you know, somebody should do something about it. And we looked around and didn't see anybody else. So we're going to try to do something. We decided to redesign that healthcare experience, and we wanted to do that through... Kai, let me know. We you're referring to as you and who else? Who came together to start this? Yeah, so really a good group of folks, including FQHC here in town, that had a couple of really bad healthcare experiences of someone calling in to access care and basically being refused. So a couple it's of... a federally qualified health center. Federal qualified health center. 
one that is funded. And so wanted to, that can spark some community conversation as well. So then it just really, we talked to leadership, we created a business plan and really found some like-minded clinicians, both physicians, nurse practitioners, pharmacists, lab tech. And we brought this group together to redesign the healthcare experience. We use a lot of principles to do this. One of those is to find to pay attention to key moments. And we recognize that any experience is made up of a whole string of moments. It might be that first check-in process, might be when the nurse calls us back into the room, when the physician comes in and is seated next to us or not seated next to us. It's when we check out. Each of those represents an opportunity either to create a better moment in healthcare or it's an opportunity to miss an opportunity to, to improve that experience. And so we wanted to pay attention to that purposefully. For example, transgender folks, a lot of times we use a name or a pronoun that is affirming. So it might be a name that's different than one's legal name. And yet when I checked in at the office, we use insurance and we have to make sure we're working with the same person that we're meeting in front of us. And so how do we just pay attention to that little moment? We can make sure that we're honoring the names that they want us to honor. You know, I was raised in medical school and raised in Iowa to use these honorifics. You know, how are you doing today, Mr. Jones? And how are you, Mrs. Smith? In 25 years as a physician, I don't remember anybody really wanting me to use their honorific. They want to be called by something that means something to them. This is rather basic stuff. It's just how do we create that space to invite people to share what name would you like us to use? What pronoun would you like us to use? That simple moment in the arena of healthcare is actually fairly profound. It's you know, what you're describing is so interesting. When you and I first met, it was actually talking about how to build trusting relationships. And so much of what anchors healthcare interactions is a relationship that's founded on creating some kind of trust, you know, essentially in the relationship. And this micro a moment or this action, you know, this idea of like our relationships are a series of these kinds of moments. And the way in which you enter that moment or you react to that moment is so vital. What you're describing is honoring whatever the person wants to be called. And interestingly, although we're talking about this regarding LGBTQ health, that notion isn't exclusive to LGBTQ patients or populations, right? They're wanting to be called whatever name you prefer. That seems like a general notion that could be applicable to anybody. It sure ought to be, right? And then, so we are talking through the lens of LGBTQ care. And again, we're talking about a marginalized group, but we have lots of marginalized groups within healthcare. And the principles that we talk about here, they absolutely transcend LGBTQ population and should be applied broad. And so you're bumping up against something that we like to think about as personalized medicine. Yeah, and Kyle, so we talk about co-production and co-design of care. That's an IHI, Institute for Healthcare Improvement, journey in which the patients and families, people, they're the designers. They get to say how they want it. And my impression of your approach is that it was very consonant with that. So most of us know the, the golden rule, treat others the way you would want them to be treated. We strive for what we call the platinum rule, which is to treat others the way they want to be treated. And again, one little word makes all the difference in the world. And again, the first noble, as it is, is really talking about is making assumptions. I'm making an assumption that this is how you want to be treated. That's inappropriate. And it's inappropriate when I'm at any store, you know, I want to find what I want. It should be also personalized when I come to the doctor. As physicians, we have our agenda. 
you know, when I see someone with diabetes, I got to check their seats and their cholesterol and their eyes and blood pressure, all the things I have on my agenda. Well, guess how often my patients really care about all those things. They really want to talk about whatever else issue that's on their agenda that day. So the idea of how do we personalize that? We got to create the very specific way to seek what is important to you. And so that I can address that. That's more personalized. That's treating people the way they want to be treated. You know, it's funny. We have a statement that we like to use at IHI that's moving from what is the matter with you, which is a common question that we ask in the clinical environment, right? Trying to understand what the reason is that a patient's in the clinic or in front of us. So what is the matter with you to what matters to you? And that simple phrasing pivot, which is another phrasing pivot similar to the one that you've described, actually opens a completely new set of doors into what really is at the heart of a person coming to see you in the clinic, which could be about a clinical concern or could be about something quite different than that. But it's kind of understanding what matters to someone so essential to that that co-delivery, co-production of care that you so beautifully do. If we're not practicing that as a culture, we're not, again, back to noticing. It's so essential that we just practice noticing. I just talked to someone here a couple months ago, maybe, that went to a doctor and they were there to talk about their blood pressure and diabetes but their mother had just passed away. And so this friend told me that I shared the story kind of maybe a little tangentially, but the doctor just didn't miss a beat and moved right on into blood pressure and cholesterol and other things. You know, clearly heard that I had this loss here recently. And again, whether that's uncomfortable for somebody or just not paying attention to that little moment, that's a, that's a clue, right? That that's an important thing. We need to just pause and talk about that. When you ask this, the vulnerable community that you focused on, especially transgender, but not only, what do they really care about? You've already mentioned naming and pronouns and affirming words. What else do you hear and how have you modified your practice in response to what people are telling you? One of the things we heard time and time again is educate thyself. You know, this idea that trans folks specifically, the way they feel when they come to the doctor, they have to educate the doctor, the clinical staff. So part of that is just we're trying to spread the message about this is what LGBTQ healthcare looks like. These are some basic principles. These are some basic terminology. Here's a couple of can't miss phrases to create a good experience for someone who identifies as trans, for example. So equip people. I believe people want to do the right thing. I just don't feel that everybody is feeling equipped. I'm not sure everybody feels like they have the words or the phrases to create a good experience. So we want to equip them. I think that's one thing we heard time and time again. The second big one is don't make assumptions. So uh, someone who identifies as trans to a nurse, and I think a nurse who is very attempting to be very affirming might immediately ask, well, are you going to have gender affirming surgery? Are you going to have top surgery? You know, it's an inappropriate assumption, I think rooted in kindness and affirmation, but an inappropriate assumption. So we wanted to be careful about assumptions. And I think the last is, you know, assuming that all folks who might identify as transgender are going to want all kinds of gender affirming care. Not all folks will choose to do gender affirming hormone therapy or gender affirming surgery. That's for sure. Kyle, you're using a set of terms here that may be unfamiliar to many of our listeners, gender affirming care, gender affirming surgery, top surgery. Could you unpack these for us a little bit and help us understand when someone comes into your care, what are some of the things that you're doing to help them clinically as well? So gender affirmation care is very broad. And so that really can include, it should include just simply creating a safer, more welcoming space. And that can be exhibited by 
my intake form as one checks in listing what name would you like us to use? What pronouns would you like us to use? When someone calls into the office, again, that key moment of calling in, that's a really vulnerable moment. That very first check-in with us, that very first contact, when we ask what name would you like us to use, for someone who's never had that experience in healthcare, that, to your point earlier, Kedar, that's a huge step towards building trust, is that you purposefully are asking, how can I honor your most authentic self? So that's gender affirming. So it starts really early. The care process starts with first call. That's, you know, kind of different. I think we think of the therapeutic period as when the doctor or nurse or otherwise enters the room and the door clicks behind you. And that's the moment where the healing happens. But you're describing healing taking place way ahead of that. When somebody first calls in to schedule something or even find out more about the clinic, the caring begins there from your perspective. It goes back to key moments, that to key moment, that very first contact. When we do gather that name and now the patient has just checked in out of the waiting room and the nurse is going to go out and call them back into the room, that's another super vulnerable moment. One where if we're not paying attention, we could use a name that's not affirming, maybe just their legal name. But instead, now that we know that, we are using the affirming name. And again, a simple little moment, but it's key. It's a key one. Now you string a bunch of key moments like that together, all of a sudden you have a happier, a better memory about that medical experience. I think that's our joyful duty in medicine. If you think about our life's most important milestones, I think often occur around healthcare. You know, it's before the diagnosis. So that happened before or after the surgery. That's how we milestone our life. And I think it's essential for us in healthcare to own that. That is our joyful duty to help people go through those experiences in a way that is just as meaningful. We're showing it's just as meaningful for us as it is for the people we get the privilege to take care of. Al, have you asked Ben what he thinks of your invention here and your the path you're following now? Ben is the spark for this again 10 years ago. And by the way, Ben is just absolutely thriving now working in Chicago and doing amazing work. So yeah, Ben's been very proud of the impact he's made. Of course, he's humbled by it and doesn't even realize, I think, the impact that he's had. But he continues his work in social justice as well. So it's kind of built into Ben. So that seems to be something that he really is a catalyst for. And that apple did not fall far from the tree, it sounds like. When I asked you earlier about the political environment, you did get a little bit cautious. In the country now, we seem to be quite divided and there's an awful lot of negativity. And I think meanness, unkindness was a word you used. So bring us up to speed about a little bit. Is there a trajectory here that you're seeing? Do you feel like there's progress? And what should we do about it? How can we create a more sophisticated reaction? And Kyle, actually, I'm curious, you said something about what's going on in Iowa specifically about the legislation that's come into play there and regarding gender affirming care. And I'm curious what's happening in Iowa, but it's happening elsewhere. And if you could comment a little bit about the impact of that on your work. Absolutely. Several states now have enacted laws that strip away access to gender-affirming care for minors. Specifically, it's addressing gender-affirming hormone therapy. So medications that we prescribe to help during that affirmation process. So if someone is identifying as more masculine, that is their gender identity, we use testosterone to help develop those characteristics that are affirming things that truly are, are life-saving for people. It also includes... How are they life-saving? So this is an important thing, I think, for people to understand. So how exactly would someone who identifies as male 
needing testosterone, how would that help them? How would that save their life? So I think it helps to think about, you know, the experience one might have as one is aging. By the way, we know our gender identity. If we're allowed to really know it outside of the pressures of society, talking about what are gender norms and those types of things. But we really do know our gender identity by the time we're three, four or five years of age. How do I identify internally? Do I identify as more masculine or feminine or both or neither? But we really do have a good sense of that if we're allowed to truly explore that. By the time we're four or five, one can kind of express and live through that gender identification, oftentimes through grade school, without much challenge. It's when they start puberty. So when we go through puberty and now my body's starting to change, that is completely incongruent with my gender identity. So if I identify as masculine and I start having a period, my whole body is screaming, what's going on here? Right. So the way what's happening with these young people is that they may identify as a gender that they are not biologically. And then the biology is happening as they age and it creates an incongruence. Is, is that what you're saying? That's right. If someone's assigned female sex at birth, but truly identifies as masculine or boy, and they start to have a period or grow breasts, that's very, very painful. That causes distress or the medical term we call is dysphoria. That dysphoria leads to increased depression, anxiety, self-harm, suicide. So three to six times increased risk for suicide. When gender affirming care is available, those challenges almost equalize to their peers. So depression, suicide risk, anxiety, those all flatten down and become closer to their peers who are not in the LGBTQ community. So that's the way that gender affirming care saves lives. There's the dysphoria causes the depression, anxiety, self-harm, suicidality can lead to someone potentially ending their life. That's right. And providing that kind of gender affirming care neutralizes that. It reduces that depression, anxiety, fear, risk of self-harm and suicide. That's correct. That's the most acute, quickest line to that improvements in wellness overall. And now we've outlawed this. Yeah, the other downside, downstream effects, again, harder to measure, but they're there in terms of access to screening for cancers and wellness uh, exams, addressing one's blood pressure and all the other issues that we deal with in healthcare. Let me go into the heart of the beast here. So what about the argument that it's a psychological problem and we just haven't, that this person who is not identifying with their biological identity just needs counseling, needs to be convinced to accept what their body's telling them. How do you address that belief? I certainly can kind of explore that in two ways. You know, one is what the data are telling us, what research tells us, which is, you know, very contrary to that. That again, these identities, these things that we know, I know myself to be what I am. I don't necessarily need counseling to help identify that. So someone who is not transgender or someone who's straight, for example, no one ever kind of questions, you know, how did you know that you were straight? And how did you know that your gender is the same as your sex assigned at birth? Do you really know that? Or maybe we should talk about that more. So again, these are things that if allowed to play out, in other words, take away some of those social external factors that really tell these kids and adults that you're quote wrong. If we take that away, then people really can just be their most authentic self. The second way I would answer that is again, our family journey. And again, the bad part of the story is it wasn't easier for our family early on. We were challenged with it. We struggled with it. We didn't understand it. We knew we loved our kid and we knew that we were going to find a way through. 
But even during the early part of that journey, you know, we didn't know at the time that our child was planning their own death by suicide. And it really wasn't until that we really understood this gender identification and honor Ben for truly who he is. All of a sudden, his joy came back. The joy that we saw when he was three years old, four years old, before some of that gender dysphoria started in. Kyle, thank you for sharing that story. I mean, you've watched this life-saving effect, gender affirmation, and with your kindness and compassion, it sounds like you've watched it transpire in your own family. So thank you for sharing that with us. So we're now passing laws, as I understand it, that are restricting access to this kind of care, this kind of life-saving care. And that's true in Iowa, as it is in other places in the country. And what impact is that having on your work and the clinic that you run? So gender-affirming care is absolutely endorsed by the major medical organizations of our country, American Academy of Pediatrics, American Academy of Family Physicians, American Medical Association, and so forth. Knowing that, again, the data are really supportive of this, that this is something that should be available, it's been really a challenge to see states, including my own in Iowa, strip away this access for our children and minors in our care. What that factually means is as of September 17th, we won't be able to prescribe medications for gender affirmation any longer in Iowa. So we're scrambling right now to find partnerships in our surrounding states. We're fortunate in Northeast Iowa. We have Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Illinois, all about two and a half hours away. And so we are fortunate that way that we think we can help. That's wonderful. We have amazing physician colleagues that I'm building relationships with in all those states. They're wonderfully accepting and incredible. But there are logistical problems too. You know, I have patients that have a hard time getting across town, let alone across the border. I mean, it's back in some ways to where the story started with Ben, right? You've got to travel now back to the three to four hour car ride, you know, to as, get- As I was thinking you. about this discussion today, I did, I, I had that realization. I said, this is bizarre, right? This is exactly how we began. Yeah. Well, why the resistance? Why the regressive policy here? Kyle, what's driving it? What's your deepest understanding of the reaction to the needs of people for gender affirming care? After all, we are a country that's supposed to be rooted in individualism and, you know, each person gets to be the person they are. Why are we not there? Isn't that the paradox? So I'll give you my interpretation of what I see and what I'm observing is that it does feel very political and it seems a very convenient kind of scapegoat to this identity of this visibility of transgender. And I think the discussion and debate about transgender athletes was a big spark for that. That's something where even folks who may identify as a bit more progressive, they still kind of struggle with that discussion. And it really feels like that was kind of the moment that we see states really kind of grab onto that through line and it's become effective. I mean, the truth is it's been a very effective political strategy. Kyle, can you take us into that a little bit? Because you're saying this is, in some ways, it's kind of the argument around sport has been a catalyst for a wider set of discussions. What is it about sport in particular? What's the argument around sport? I think I know it, but I want to make sure that we're explaining this properly. I think that that is something that is harder for folks, even who want to be affirming, to be maybe willing to accept that trans feminine athletes, for example, someone who's sex assigned male at birth, who identifies as feminine, there's discussion about well, what's fair in high school girls sports or women's sports beyond. Now, the interesting part of this is you know, being a sports fan myself, I haven't seen 
politicians really care about equity in women's sports. There's gross, you know, problems with equal playing time on TV with safety, you know, in terms of athletes being abused by those in power and certainly a pay. Um, pay different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly there's a, this wide interest in what's fair in women's sports. It feels a little disingenuous to me. Same about use of bathroom facilities and fears people seem to have about, I don't know what they imagine uh, would be going on, but I love now going into a restaurant where the bathroom sign says whatever. <laughs> right, whatever. In fact, actually, we went to a restaurant recently and I loved it. One bathroom said readers and the other one said dreamers. Thought, that's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> gotta, that's pretty, that's pretty good. That, take that away. Kyle, well, first, thanks to you and your family and Ben and this whole story is quite moving. And, and I think it's a model for not just the care of LGBT people, but also communities that are marginalized and maybe everyone, because you have this property of you put paying attention is what you call it. I think listening, tuning into what people really need. What if we designed healthcare that way? What if healthcare started with what really matters to people and each individual gets to be the person they are? Have you ever thought about what healthcare would look like if we went in that direction? You've learned a big lesson here, it seems to me. Without a doubt. And remember the old uh, mantra from maybe 100,000 lives days, nothing about me without me. And you know, the idea that when I'm in my most vulnerable moment, which is often again healthcare, when I'm on that exam table or in that hospital bed, I'm putting everything I have into that. And I need to be 100% at the table, 100% aware of what's going on. And at the core, I'm not a diagnosis. You know, I'm a person, I'm a human. And I need to know that, I need to feel that, not just lip service, but truly appreciate that at my core. And that means see me for my most authentic self. And for example, with our transgender folks, so many times we hear about them going to see other physicians maybe and say, well, listen, I want to talk about your gender affirming hormone care, but we're going to get your diabetes under control first. You got to get your weight under control first. In other words, it really felt like dangling this life-saving care in front of them until this patient conformed to what we thought in healthcare was important. That type of treatment is the opposite. It's not starting with your most authentic self. Our observation, again, some anecdote and some rooted in research is that you address that element first, you take care of the individual first, and all of a sudden they do start to care about their health. There's a power thread here. Clinicians might say, well, we'll lose control. We will be overwhelmed with demand. I can't handle different care for every single person. Some of the pushback I can already hear in my imagination. And your response? That's a whole other hour right in that moment, because the idea that this is hard, you know, is challenging to me. So first of all, people in healthcare do hard things, that's for sure. But what we're talking about here is basic respect. It's seeing people, you know, for who they are. To me, that's our truthfully joyful duty. It ought to be our duty to find ways to personalize that care. And again, physicians really love to just sit back on their haunches and say, you know, I treat everybody exactly the same way. We were trained that way. That was part of our training. It was was ingrained in us. Well, the truth is we don't treat people the same way. There's bias all over the place. If we're not aware and don't, again, notice, back to noticing our own bias, we're going to get into trouble. But then the other part of that is we have different outcomes. And so if I'm treating everybody the same way, how can I chomp for different outcomes? And again, in medicine, we quickly go back to blaming patients for those outcomes. 
Whereas I think it's our job. We can't abdicate that to the others in the community, including patients. It's our job to find a way to get better outcomes for everyone. Well, that's, I think, a really important message that you're bringing to us here. This notion of noticing that we too often cast blame when in fact, there's probably something about the way that we are noticing and paying attention and asking or inviting people into the exam room and, or into the interaction, even before the exam room, as you have so importantly said to us, that actually creates the dynamic that either creates health or doesn't. Kyle, you know, one of the things that we like to ask our guests, there's a theme in our show in several of our shows about whether there's a difference somewhere else in the world. In some ways, I'm curious about how this story looks in another country. Are we in the U.S. behind the eight ball here? Are there other countries that are doing this better? What are your role models when you look to better care for LGBTQ folks? Who do you look to? Who do you admire? Who do you try to study? I've done most of that following here in the States. So we do have great models of how this is being done well. So uh, Senway in your area is, is a good model. And, Fenway uh, Health in Boston. You're, you're in saying. Boston, exactly. Yeah. They really do a great job. University of California, San Francisco has the Transgender Center of Excellence. So on both coasts, we love to study those models and try to replicate the medical part of that. In terms of creating a better experience, gosh, you know, it's something I even look to industry outside of healthcare. I look to other places that do this experience well. And again, there's lots wrong with this example, but when I get onto Amazon, they kind of know what I want, right? And so again, that they're personalizing that. And same is true when, when I go to Starbucks, they can make it exactly the way I want it. It's predictable, but also the way I want it. And I think that's got to be our goal in healthcare is, is how do we provide that reliable care and do it in a way that truly honors the individual. Well, treat others as they want to be treated. I think that type of rule is something probably that industry has learned long before healthcare. And you're citing several that do that extremely well. And we'll see how that might translate into healthcare in the future. Kyle, we like to end all of our shows with a question that we ask everybody about how optimistic you feel about this moment in time. There's a lot going on and specifically in your space that's, I imagine, putting a lot of pressure on you and on the work you do. But on the optimism to pessimism spectrum, where do you fall at this time? We are sad about what's happening in Iowa. We're sad about what's happening in many states, stripping away access to gender-affirming care for minors. That is the challenge. And our patients are suffering already. We have seen the outcome of that happening. You know, since that law was enacted, we've seen our kids suffer and our families suffer. They are experiencing increased depression and anxiety. That's a big challenge. I also believe in healthcare. I think that we're at a crisis moment in healthcare. It's incredibly broken. It's broken for every single constituent of it, for patients, for providers, for team members, for families. So what I'm hoping is that we actually find a way to break through and do something transformational, not something incremental. You know, I think what we need is something that truly is turn the system upside down and make it different by design. And so one of the rules we live by is don't leave a good experience to chance. And that is what happens all the time. Rather, we need to design for it. Let's redesign redesign healthcare experience. When we do that, then we're going to design it to be the way that we want it, the way our patients want it, the way families want it. And then it's it's more likely to be successful for everybody. This clinic time that I'm talking about for LGBTQ clinic is carved out of the busy day for providers once every couple of weeks. And every one of the team members, they say, this is my most joyful, fun, 
two hours of medicine every week. This is why, you know, I come back. Why can't that be throughout the day? And Kyle, where can people find you and find this clinic that you're describing, this place that is not only helping so many patients and folks, but also giving joy to the workforce? Where do people find out more about what you're up to and what you're doing? The clinic is Unity Point Health, Prairie Parkway, LGBTQ clinic. And this is in Cedar Falls, Iowa. We did start a second clinic in Des Moines, our more urban center, part of our healthcare system. And we were planning on some other models outside. So spreading it across the system and then COVID hit. So things are slowed down a little bit, but that's starting to get built up again. Unity Point Prairie Parkway, the LGBTQ clinic. So Kyle, another resource that you mentioned earlier, can you maybe tell us a little bit about that resource? You know, today we've talked about some tough things and for many that can be fairly triggering. So one thing I want to pass on is awareness about the Trevor Project. And this is an online resource for folks who may be struggling with suicide concerns or concerns about depression or anxiety. And so I encourage those folks to be aware of Trevor Project and for others to contribute to its cause. The and Trevor that's Trevor, Project. T-R-E-V-O-R, T-R-E-V-O-R project.org. Kyle, thank you. You've telling us how to break through out of a bunch of broken parts, but I really appreciate how much you've given. Thank you so much for what you do. And thanks to Ben for inspiring you and so many others and really appreciate you being here on Turn on the Lights. Thank you. It's been a great joy and I'm so grateful for this conversation and again, grateful for the space that you're convening for these really important conversations. Thank you. Don, treat others as they would want to be treated. It seems like a rule that we should have long held in healthcare and in medicine. Platinum rule, yes. The platinum <laughs> rule, right. Pay yeah. attention, pay attention. He's really uh, giving us a very strong message. I find it also inspiring and intriguing that a physician, a clinician would work out of their own personal experience and then develop a mission such as he has. It's so authentic and so deeply founded. That's really moving. And it's the, not the only such case, by the way. I've seen in a number of cases, physicians who've gone through something difficult or something instructive, something new in their lives, and they've converted that into an effort to help a lot of people. Yeah. Personal cause, a calling, I think some people call it, but I think it really is that in, in Kyle's case, it's a family calling, really. It wasn't, it's him, but it's also the rest of his family that have kind of come alongside and built something here that's pretty remarkable. And slowly, he says, scaling although I'm sure facing considerable headwinds with the legislation, legislative challenges that are now being put in his path, blocks that are being put in his path. Yeah, you have to give Kyle credit for not just for a wonderful mission and a very inventive approach, but for doing it in what's potentially a difficult political and geographic terrain. I'm sure there are many people in Iowa who want to see this proceed despite the negative policy environment that's developed. But take some real guts to do this in a community that you're deeply part of and that may not be completely supportive. It's um, interesting so. what he had to say about the beginnings of this. This is a 10-year story now for him. It's not recent. He didn't just arrive at this. This is something that he's been working on for years. And at least as I understood the story as he told it, it is a relatively newer thing to face the kind of politics that he's now dealing with. You know, the early days of the clinic and his work, it sounded at least to me like he was saying... People really met them where he needed them to be. That's the story he told me a few years ago when I first heard the story was people came out of the woodwork to help in this case. And now 
the politics and the political climate have changed, it sounds like. And the headwinds are much stronger than they once were. So there's a story here altering. Yeah. yeah, there is, to be clear, a, a wave of political momentum around parts of the country that is injurious to people's health. And this is one specific example of that. And it hasn't always been that way. So one looks for a time more supportive of the platinum rule, I guess. Yeah. Well, I and suppose the, if it hasn't always been this way, it doesn't always need to be this way, right? It, it, exactly. But we do need leaders and change agents like Kyle. And uh, I hope our podcast does what you and I intended in part, which is to make people be aware of the gems like his. So maybe they can be copied, replicated, supported much more broadly. They certainly deserve to be. Yeah. I mean, his principles for better care, you know, noticing, acting, understanding what people want that you're working with, building that in, those are principles that can be applied to almost any anyone. And, you know, it's a very universal kind of set of ideas and principles that could be applied to almost anything. Yep. That's sure the care I want. I don't know about you, but sounds better <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <to> me. <laughs> absolutely. Well, thanks, Don. Thank you, Cater. The Turn On The Lights podcast is a production of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. A huge thank you to Don Berwick for hosting with me, Kate Armate. Thank you also to our IHI colleagues, Stephen Waldron and Joanne Endo, our researchers, Bob Jane and Tej Patel, and to the Outcomes Rocket team. And of course, thanks to all of you, our listeners, for tuning in to us. Support for Turn On The Lights comes from the RX Foundation, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thanks for listening to Turn on the Lights, where we're trying to shed light on the thorniest problems and the most innovative solutions in healthcare. We'd like to help you understand. To listen to more episodes or find the show notes and other resources, please visit us at ihi.org. Thank you.